Welcome to the Royal Caribbean Blog Podcast, a weekly look into the world of Royal Caribbean cruising. I'm your host, Matt Hotchberg, and this is episode number 258. Perhaps no destination has gotten as much attention in the last couple of years as Cuba. With Royal Caribbean offering cruises to this once off-limits island, I couldn't help not booking one myself, and on this week's episode, I'll review my recent five-night cruise on Royal Caribbean's Majesty of the Seas to Cuba and other places in the Caribbean. It's not only a look at what Cuba's all about and my experience in Old Havana, but also my first time trying a ship the size of Majesty of the Seas. Here we go. Ever since Royal Caribbean announced that they were going to start offering cruises to Cuba, I have been infatuated with the idea of finally getting a chance to visit Cuba myself, and I always wanted to go on one of the sailings almost immediately. In fact, I remember when Royal Caribbean first announced the sailings, I was primed to book like the first or second sailing out there. Unfortunately, the announcement and sale of the first couple of sailings coincided with me being unemployed at the time, which doesn't really make booking cruises conducive or a good idea. So I had a pass on it, and as time went on, I obviously got another job, which is great, but I also kind of let the idea languish a little bit, and until a couple months ago, I was just, I hadn't gone there. It was on my to-do list. I knew I had to go to Cuba. I just, I don't know, was waiting for the right time. Well, the right time came in the idea of one afternoon. I was sitting on the Royal Caribbean website, as one does, kind of making a look at the mock book and see what's around there. And it got me thinking, you know, certainly I had some time over the summer to go on a cruise. Not so much time off of work, but time, you know, between cruises, right? And any good Royal Caribbean cruiser knows that if you go a little bit too long between cruises, man, it really gets to you. And certainly the idea of going through the entire summer without a cruise started to nag at me a little bit. And I came up with an idea, and I was looking at some things, and of course, you know, I was really running short of of time off of work, so really I was at the mercy of a sailing that would coincide well with maybe a built-in day off, and lo and behold, July 4th bailed me out here, so... We ended up going on the July 4th sailing of Majesty of the Seas. It allowed me to go visit Havana, Cuba for the very first time, check out Majesty of the Seas for the very first time, and it only required me to actually work from the ship one day. Now, if you listen to a review I did last year on Harmony of the Seas when I cruised over July 4th holiday and worked from the ship, I kind of was poo-pooing the idea of ever doing it again. It was not something I really enjoyed, but this one was different. Why? Well, because it came around again. But no, the reason why I, I changed my tune on working from aboard a ship was, the first of all, I was only going to work for one day on board Majesty of the Sea. So with that, I could kind of deal with that. One day, not so bad. You know, that's certainly, I can deal with that rather than maybe going on a cruise in which I'm working for, you know, two, three, or even four days from on board the ship. That's a whole different ball game and a different mindset, quite honestly. But one day wasn't too bad. Anyway, we booked Majesty of the Seas. It was a five-night sailing out of Tampa, Florida. It was going to visit the ports of Key West, Florida, Havana, Cuba, Cosmo, Mexico, then have a sea day and return back to uh, Tampa. It worked out really, really well because it left on July 4th, which is a holiday I got off of work, so no need to take a day off there. The next day, we were in Key West, Florida, so I worked on board the ship there, and then I took the day off for Havana. So one day off and then Saturday was in Cozumel. Sunday was a sea day. And I got back on a Monday morning and was able to drive back to my house with plenty of time to spare. Hashtag living in Florida, right? It's one of the nice things about being down here. And one of the regrets I had when I lived in Florida previously was we never really took advantage of those kind of sailing. So, you know what? I, I kind of pushed things. I, I told my wife, you know, nagged her about it, booking it. And she finally relented and let me do it. So 
there we went. I have to say that there's some important backstory to this cruise also. It's worth mentioning. And that is actually the day before my cruise, I threw out my back. And I only mention this because I really thought there was a pretty good chance I was, this was going to be the first Royal Caribbean cruise in which I just simply wouldn't show up for it. I was going to, I don't know, cash in my travel insurance or, I don't know, it was going to be some crazy story about why I didn't actually go on Majesty of the Seas. Luckily, uh, it, and modern medicine is a wonderful thing, and it helped me be functional, A, most importantly, and B, I pushed myself a little bit to say, you know what? If I'm going to be miserable somewhere with back pain, it may as well be on a cruise ship rather than be at my house. And lo and behold, uh, we went on the cruise anyway. And I mention all this because it kind of plays into some of the things we did later on in the cruise and uh, maybe some of the mindset as you were uh, looking into some of the things we're going to talk about. So let's talk about Majesty of the Seas. I want to, uh, this is really going to be a review of Majesty of the Seas and Cuba because those are the two big things, the big changes. Certainly, we've talked about Key West before and we've talked about Cosmo a bazillion times. I don't need to dedicate time to that. But Majesty of the Seas is a obviously the second smallest ship in Royal Caribbean's fleet. I've never sailed on a ship of her size before. The smallest I'd been on was Rhapsody of the Seas earlier this year. But Majesty is a sovereign class ship. Uh, she's the last of the sovereign class. Uh, of course, her sister ships, uh, Sovereign of the Seas and Monarch of the Seas, are no longer in Royal Caribbean International's fleet. They've been transferred to a Pullmanter uh, fleet. So. Again, Majesty is the last of her kind, and I've never sailed on Majesty, and it's kind of interesting. I just never got around to it. Of course, I prefer, admittedly, bigger ships. We, that's what we like. We like row promenades. We don't. It's not like I go on the zip line like three times a day or anything like that, or I need to have a flow rider by any means. I've never actually been on the flow rider. I just like the amenities you get with a large ship. I like the variety of activities and entertainment and dining that you get with a larger ship, and that's what we tend to gravitate towards. But I wanted to be able to go to Cuba, first and foremost. And the bottom line is there are only two ships at this time that go to Cuba in Royal Caribbean's fleet, Majesty of the Seas and Empress of the Seas. And Empress is even smaller. But we picked Majesty because she sails out of Tampa, Florida, which is roughly an hour from my house. And I knew that we could probably get back in time for work on that Monday morning. Whereas Empress of the Seas, while offering arguably better itineraries, sails out of Miami, Florida. So in order for that to happen, you know, on... Either day that would require, you know, whether it's embarkation day or disembarkation day, it's a three-hour-plus drive uh, each way, which just doesn't make it really conducive for coming back. So I was kind of pushed or, or stuck with, if you will, the idea of going on Majesty out of Tampa. It wasn't the best itinerary for Cuba. There's a lot of interesting itineraries. When Royal first put out itineraries, they just did exactly the kind of itinerary we're doing now, which is a regular port day visit. But... In the last year or so, we've seen overnight visits. We've seen multiple stop visits start to emerge where you can go to different ports in Cuba. So this wasn't, again, the the most incredible, most compelling Cuba itinerary, but it worked for my schedule because we booked this back in April or May. So it wasn't too long ago. This is what I would consider to be a last-minute booking, and it wasn't the best deal either, but it was reasonable. It got me to Cuba, and it got me another cruise along the way. So it kind of checked off all those boxes there. Now, going on to Majesty, you know, it was interesting because it was a bit of a culture shock. What I mean by that is, if you've been on a Voyager, a Freedom, an Oasis, a Quantum, even a, even a, a Vision Glass ship, there's a lot of similarities to them. They kind of flow well together, you know? Some have a Promenade, some have a Centrum, but you kind of get it really, really quick. I never had any issues kind of getting acclimated to one class over another. But with Majesty of the Seas, I really did find myself, after so many cruises on the larger ships in the fleet, Really feeling like almost culture shock because it is so different. It comes from a different time in Royal Caribbean's history. And while there is a centrum 
and which lends itself to certainly the Radiance and, and Vision class ships, it was just very different. There were three elevator banks. There were lounges that were massive. There were, you know, uh, only one dining venue, the main dining room, and of course the Winjamer, right? Like that's it. They have the chef's table, but I don't really count that as a as an alternative. Me a Johnny Rockets, but again, not the world's biggest Johnny Rockets fan. It's like, you know, it really. There's no Chops Grill. There's no Izumi. There's no Sabor. Shocking. Uh, you know, there, it's really a different style of cruising. And I got to tell you, in the first two days of the cruise, I think it took us time, not only myself and my wife, to get used to a ship like Majesty of the Seas. Not in a bad way, just different. It's like culture. You just got to go like, okay, I got to wrap my mind around, you know, where things are. Like, to me, I, it was weird. I, I had trouble finding the Windjammer on one of the days. In fact, uh, I remember getting on board the ship, and we literally got lost trying to find the Windjammer. And... I got to tell you, I don't remember the last time I ever got lost on a Royal Caribbean ship, even on the new ships, because it just, I don't know why, there's something about that they kind of were very, very similar, but Majesty was different in that way, which again, isn't a bad thing, it just took some time to get used to, but I do feel like by day three, certainly by day four, we were getting into the swing of things, we were totally getting it, and I could start to see why people like Majesty of the Seas. There's a lot of folks who still swear by Majesty of the Seas, who really enjoy what it offers, they like the size of it. They like the the style, if you will, that Majesty offers, and I can understand that. First and foremost, I think there's, uh, you know, despite its size, it doesn't actually feel like a small ship. I was expecting to get on board Majesty and just see little tiny venues everywhere, right? And it's not really that case. Despite its size, Majesty doesn't feel like a small ship. Uh, and that's something a lot of people have told me, and I understand now what they mean by that. I mean, you've got, like, as an example, you go to Boleros, you go to the Spectrum, which is another lounge that they have on there. I mean, these lounges encompass the entire deck from side to side. I mean, it's not like on Harmony of the Seas, where you go to Boleros, and it is one part, one subsection of the Royal Promenade off to the side. It is massive. There's a ton of space to it. And in some regards, it's nice because they dedicate more space to it, so they have a lot more opportunity to be able to take advantage of these venues. They're not crammed in somewhere, which is kind of a nice thing to have, no question about it. In fact, I was shocked by the size of Adventure Ocean. Not shocked that it was small, shocked it was large, because we had been on Rhapsody of the Seas, which had a really tiny Adventure Ocean space, but on Majesty, it was really big. Much bigger than I thought it was going to be, which was a pleasant surprise, quite honestly. I mean, on Rhapsody, the Adventure Ocean space between Aquanauts, Explorers, and Voyagers is just essentially one large room with some glass dividers in the middle. But here on Majesty, it was, you know, separate sections, walled-off areas. It was a legitimate space for it, which was, again, a, a pleasant surprise to me. Going to the Viking Crown Lounge, you know, this is the Majesty of the Seas is the only ship in the fleet that has a complete wraparound Viking Crown Lounge like the way it used to be. Some other ships have had that in the past, but in recent updates and years, Royal Caribbean decided to take away some of that space and add, you know, dining venues like Izumi or concierge lounges, so they cut up the space. So, you know, the, the bar area of, like, if you can think of Freedom of the Seas, uh, Viking Crown Lounge area, you know, you go to the bar up there, and it's one section. It's like, you know, it's it's fairly large, but it only encompasses, you know, it doesn't go around the entire span, the entire uh, circumference, there's the word I'm looking for, of the Viking Crown Lounge. I imagine it does, and it was kind of interesting and kind of cool, i got to say. I like it. I mean, I don't know that I wouldn't trade that, for, again, for a couple extra dining venues, but it was a nice thing to do, and I definitely enjoyed what Majesty had to offer from that regard. In fact, the pool deck was surprisingly large. It was, you know, if you if you had blindfolded me, 
dropped me on Majesty and asked me, okay, Matt, what ship are you on just based purely on the pool deck? You wouldn't think that it necessarily would be Majesty. I mean, you had a Splash Away Bay, which my kids love. That's the aqua park over there. There was a water slide. There's tons of fountains and things to shoot water at and all sorts of things. There was a kid's pool there. There was the main pool. But it, the, the width of it, again, just felt like I was on, honestly, a Voyager-class ship or or certainly a Radiance-class ship's pool deck. It didn't feel... I, I was totally expecting the venues to feel a whole lot smaller. So that's definitely a big takeaway from that. And it's something I definitely enjoyed. And again, once we kind of got an idea with the flow of it, you know, it made more sense. I mean, there's that one elevator bank in the in the centrum that goes to like four floors and I, it's so weird. And I'm like, why did I put an elevator in here in the first place? I don't know, but it's there. And it's, you know, once we figured out, you know, okay, well, in the forward elevator bank, there's actually two different elevator banks that are separate. And you have to push the button for both and you got to play the game, which one is coming first and then go jump over to the other side. It's, there's some nuances to it, right? And all ships have that. And certainly, we got used to it. And I think by the end of the cruise, we were totally on the ball with it. And having five nights gave us just enough time, really, to figure it out. One of the things I always tell people is those three and four night cruises go by way too quickly. Five nights was a really good amount of time to really wrap our minds around around Majesty. And I, I think, again, by the end of the cruise, we were on it. Both our kids and my, my wife were kind of like, okay, now we get this. We understand how to... How to do Majesty of the Seas, and it it was it was really nice. Uh, we did have a great time on board. Uh, my kids loved Adventure Ocean; they did great there. I probably had one of the best, if not the best, stateroom attendants on board. Uh, certainly, the staff everywhere was very friendly. A very friendly staff. A lot of ships, I think, have a certain reputation for having very friendly staff, and Majesty is one of those ships, and I can understand why now. They do a great job with it. Um, just really, really nice. And, you know, we definitely enjoyed the ship. And I think that even if you're coming from a large ship background, you can enjoy Majesty of the Seas. I think the key is, you know, an itinerary like this. We did, you know, we, it was a five-night cruise with three port stops. So day one is, a, is a, I guess you call it a port stop, right? It's embarkation day. Then you have, you know, port day, port day, port day, one sea day, and then back. So, you know, you're not relying. You don't need flow riders and Broadway shows and and. Central Park and all those other things that are certainly nice to have, uh, you know, you because you're so you're going to be more reliant on the ports. In fact, it kind of reminded me when I first got into cruising. I remember I really didn't like sea days. I like port days because I got into cruising as an idea, as an excuse, if you will, to get to various ports. I wanted to see more of the world. I didn't want to fly to each single one. I wanted a little taste of it. So I like ports and. And sea days were kind of like, oh, I hate sea days. And I'm going to spend time on the ship. Now, of course, I've changed my tune on that. But on a ship like Majesty where you have so many port days, it's actually not too bad because, again, you're not totally reliant on the ship to provide the entertainment for you all the time. You have the port, and that way, if you're only dealing with a couple hours, maybe in the morning and the evening, it's not too bad. Also, uh, i got to give credit where credit is due. The ship's captain was amazing in the sense that in every port we visited, Key West, Havana, and, and Cozumel, the captain negotiated more time for us. Sometimes that came in the form of us arriving early. Uh, sometimes it came in the form of staying an hour or two later, and in some cases, it was actually both. We got there earlier, and we stayed later, and that was awesome. Having extra time was huge, especially in Havana, where the captain got us an extra hour. We were able to stay one hour later. I mean, it was just incredible to have that extra hour. It's really one hour. It doesn't sound like a lot, but you know, when you're there for you know, the difference between six hours and seven hours, seven hours and eight hours is huge. That's an extra meal. That's an extra, okay, now we can go do that other thing we wanted to go see. 
it made it made a big difference, and I got to say, I was very very pleased with that. One of the things, though, I wanted to dispel is the notion that if you go on a small ship, be it Majesty, certainly be it Radiance or Radiance class or or even Vision class, but especially on Majesty, that only large ships have crowds and lines, and that you know I've always heard from people like, oh, I don't like going on the Oasis class ships because you know they have so many lines and crowds. Why can't they be like the smaller ships in the fleet? You know, and they and I, and. I want to Majesty, quite honestly, think, okay, well, here it is. Here's going to be the other side, how the other side lives, and I can't wait to see it. i got to tell you, there were still lines and crowds. It was the same thing. If you rolled into the Windjammer at 9 a.m., we had to do a couple laps to get a table. If you go to the pool deck after, geez, 8, 8.30 in the morning, the chair hogs are out in force, just like on the big ships. I guess what I'm trying to say is lines and crowds exists on all ships of all sizes unless you go on like a private yacht or some luxury cruise line that you know services a couple hundred people lines are part of cruising it's the nature of the beast when you're doing with travel engineering you go to Walt Disney World there's going to be lines you go on a Royal Caribbean cruise there's going to be lines sometimes you know it's just not a it's not great but it's just part of the game and i just don't understand any quite honestly Anybody who says otherwise that smaller ships don't have lines or have crowds, it's the same thing. It's all relative, obviously. I mean, yeah, of course, on Harmony of the Seas, you've got, you know, five, 6,000 passengers. That's a lot more people. But, of course, you've also got, like, three times the size of the ship. So it's all relative. It's I, I don't understand that notion. I'm, I'm, I'm saying all this high on my horse at the top of my soapbox, as I can tell you all this. But I, I, that's the one thing that I, I would just... I was like, I don't get why people think that it's a different, a very different experience. It's not. There's still lines. There's still crowds. Not a big deal, quite honestly. But anyway, I'm sure somebody's going to send me some angry emails about that after hearing all that. Uh, but I did enjoy it. And I think that Majesty was a, a fun ship. Uh, certainly for the itinerary that we sailed, wonderful. Would I want to do a transatlantic on her? Eh, probably not, because, of course, transatlantic would have a lot of sea days. But you know, is it my favorite ship in the fleet? No, but we had a really good time on her, and I certainly enjoyed it. Uh, we also had an Ocean View stateroom, which was kind of interesting, uh, because I, quite frankly, don't remember the last time I stayed in an Ocean View stateroom. It's been a while. Uh, I'd have to really rack my brain as to figure out the last time I stayed in one. I've stayed in inside rooms, interior rooms, virtual balconies, and balconies, and suites, but I really don't remember the last time I did an, an Ocean View. Nonetheless, it was great, actually. Uh, we did two non-connecting ocean view rooms. What I mean by that is that uh, obviously there's four of us, me and my wife and my two kids and we, so that means two of us stayed in one room, two of us stayed in the other. Usually we do this with a connecting room, with a connecting door in the middle that allows free flow between both rooms without having to go to the hallway. Not the case this time. As, a, in terms of family thing, we didn't think it would be as a big of a deal as it was. It was. It was. I didn't think it was going to be a big deal to be able to say okay, I want to go to the other room, you know, let me just walk outside and go back in. It, it was, it was kind of a pain. In fact, a lot of times we just didn't do it because it was just like to go, you basically have to exit your room, knock on the door, wait for somebody to open it and go in. Now, granted, in retrospect, as I think about it now, I probably could have gone to guest relations and asked for a separate card, you know, so I could have had a card access to that room and then I wouldn't have to wait for somebody to open the door for me. But even so, I don't know. One of the things we liked about having connecting rooms with our kids was, you know, they could play in there and keep the door open and we could hear them, right? So we know when they're fighting as an example. Um, you know, it was, I don't know, it just flowed better. So from a family perspective, if we were to do this again, I think it would give us more pause for it. Certainly, if it was the decision between cruising and not cruising, I'd probably still go for it. But, you know, uh, I think certainly, I, I do think, though, that we're going to place more value 
especially when, until the kids get a little bit older, to say, you know, we need to have connecting rooms because uh, it, it definitely did change the dynamic of it. And nothing wrong with the room itself. It was perfectly good. Uh, it just didn't... There was a different flow to it, and I think we quite noticed that. I will say one other nice thing about Majesty. It has the best internet on any Royal Caribbean ship that is not an Oasis or Quantum-class ship, period. It was blazingly fast internet, and that's a really good uh, compliment right there for uh, the ship. I, As somebody who heavily relies on the internet, it was really great to see, especially considering last week I was on Explorer this season, which had terrible internet on board. So this was really, really nice. Now let's talk about Cuba, of course. Cuba, big highlight. The reason we booked this cruise, going to Havana. Uh, we we were there for, well, we were supposed to be there for, I think, eight hours. We got that extra hour out of it for the captain negotiating, which was awesome. And we had struggled with what excursion to book, what to do in Havana. Not because there weren't options. There were options there. But we really wanted to do it right the first time. I think it's there's a lot more pressure that you put on yourself when you go to a port for the first time versus when you've been there like eight times. Like go to Cozumel. Like I don't care what we do in Cozumel at this point. I mean, we try to do fun things, but I really don't lose any sleep over it. Havana, we I, I don't know how many evenings my wife and I would talk about what we should do in Havana. I ended up booking the excursion really at the last minute because we just said, okay, we're going to finally decide on something. And we did the Old City Sightseeing Tour. This is through Royal Caribbean. I had reached out to a third-party tour that a lot of people had recommended called Blexi Tours. B-L-E-X-I-E. A lot of people swear by it. Our good friend Michael Poole, who's been on this podcast, used it and raved about it. And I reached out to them early on about it. But unfortunately, the tour operator was very unresponsive. It's part, First of all, they're in Cuba. Internet access is not easy to come. I totally get that. I'm not like expecting answers in 10 minutes or less. But... They gave us a tour that didn't really work for our time in port. Like, it was going to be, like, you know, just too long, and I wanted to curtail it. Say, you know, can we try chopping it down a couple, a little bit so that we have, you know, a little more buffer time? Because if you're doing a third party, I would like to be able to have enough time to get back to the ship with plenty of time to spare. Anyway, it ended up being they just stopped responding to my request, and then I said, okay, I want to take the hint and go in a different direction. So, certainly, third party tours are, are really good to do, and I'll talk about that a little bit at the end of this. But we ended up booking the old... City sightseeing tour through Royal Caribbean. I think they rated it as a five-hour tour or something like that. Um, it, basically, what you do is you board a air-conditioned bus. Emphasis on air-conditioned. Air-conditioned bus that takes you to four different places in Havana. And along the way, obviously, you see quite a bit from the bus. Uh, but the four places, there's an old uh, the old cemetery in Havana. Then it's on to Revolutionary Square, uh, a very large statue of Christ, and one of the old Spanish forts that's uh, in that guards the entrance to Havana. Along the way, you see a lot of different things. And, you know, it's quite a bit. It's a really good primer for the history of Havana. And, you know, part of my concern going to this, well, first of all, was, again, I hurt my back a couple days before. Walking tour, Old City, Cobblestone, you know, Oy Gewalt is all you can think about, right? Just me walking around like Mr. Burns from The Simpsons with a hunchback, you know, just trying to catch up with the group there. No worries at all. It ended up being fine like that. In fact, one of the nice things about the bus is it has air conditioning. Havana really has little to no air conditioning at all. So, it, and, and we're going in July. So, not exactly, <laughs> you know, a, a, a brisk time of year to go. Uh, so, we knew it was going to be hot. Actually, it ended up not being as hot as I thought because the uh, for some reason, there was a lot of cloud cover that day. And I think the high was only around 80 degrees. Anyway, I'm not complaining about that. It was great. But it was still hot and humid. And you stand outside for about five minutes, and you're going to start sweating quite a bit. But, uh, you know, the the air conditioning bus was really nice because you would go to these places. You go to the cemetery. You go to Revolutionary Square, walk around, see all these things, sweat quite a bit, 
get back on the bus and then kind of, you know, rejuvenate yourself, get a little more energy back. Because I'll tell you, five minutes of air conditioning will give anybody more, much more energy and the will to live, as I call it. Uh, it really made a big difference. The places we went were really, really nice. The cemetery was amazing. The Revolutionary Score was really cool. Uh, the the Statue of Christ was nice. I probably could have picked something else to see just because it's like, it's like it, it was kind of like, for me, it was a moment out of... Uh, the uh, National Lampoon's Vacation, where uh, where Clark Griswold goes to the Grand Canyon and he kind of looks around, and goes, uh huh, uh huh. Okay, let's go. Now, granted, in the movies, and he's in a hurry for something else, but that's unrelated to this. Like, you know, you see the statue. Okay, looks nice. They can tell you the history. Cool. All right, let's move on to the next one. But we end up spending like thirty minutes over there. Anyway, uh, and then we went to the old Spanish fort, which I love. I love old Spanish forts. I can never get enough of old Spanish forts. If someday I'll do nothing but old Spanish forts, but it's really a lot of fun. You know, at the end of the day, the tour was a typical group tour. Moved at a group's pace, so kind of slow, and I already highlighted that with the with the statue thing. Uh, but it was good. It, it served exactly what we wanted to do, and it actually left us a couple hours at the end of the tour to do more. Uh, and, that, and that extra hour the captain gave us really cemented the idea we'd have time. At first, we're like, I don't know if we're going to have enough time to really do much, like lunch and maybe walk around. But it did give us that time, which is really nice. You know, I would recommend the tour for anybody who's looking for a definitely a good first time. Let's see what old Havana is all about kind of thing. Uh, but beyond that, I would probably say that if I had to go back and do it again, I might say that I would maybe opt for a different tour. If I go back in time, uh, someone, a good friend of mine, Billy from CruiseHabit.com, uh, did a through Royal Caribbean did the walking tour and despite the name walking tour there's actually a bus involved with it basically the bus in our tour was more guided like you get off the bus the the tour guide shows you around like all right on this side you got this on this side you got that right uh whereas the walking tour is more of like here you are we're in revolutionary square meet back here in an hour you know and figure out where you're going to go from there and that i kind of like kind of like that kind of self-exploration thing a little bit so if i could go back in time i might give myself a little more edge to that tour but the thing the tour i did was really nice and i'll tell you the air conditioning bus was really nice. I I definitely took a nap during the one of the, between two of the stops there. I will point out a couple things about Cuba I wanted to talk about. Number one, unless you're like the first person getting off the ship t- when you dock in Cuba, the customs line takes forever. There's nothing you can do about it. It is the nature of the beast because you're at the mercy of the Cuban government, and it just moves really slow. And the building you're in is really hot. It stinks literally and and. Not really literally, but uh, metaphorically. And, you know, it, it really, you know, it's just one of those things you got to deal with. Plan ahead of time, especially if you're doing your own tour. I would say if you're doing it on your own, you should plan on being like the first dude off there because then their line isn't so bad. But, you know, I think between the time we met our group in the theater of the ship to the time we actually got on the bus and the bus left the the area had to have been at least an hour and a half between going to customs, exchanging money, Etc. Customs, it's it's a simple process. They just take forever to do it. Uh, then you exchange money, which is really easy to do. You basically go to a, a kiosk. Uh, there's a person there. You give them your cash you want to exchange, and they give you back the Cuban currency that you're allowed to use, and then you're on your way. Um, I for the, A lot of people ask, how much money should you bring there? I brought cash. I brought $200 to exchange. It's probably on the high side of things. I prefer to have too much than not enough, because actually in Cozumel, I ended up having not enough money. So there you go. There goes that theory. But anyway, uh, bring, I figure bring more than enough. Uh, if you're, if you're not, if your tour is already paid ahead of time, 
I think probably a hundred dollars would have been fine unless you're really going crazy with souvenirs. But anyway, I brought too much and that's the end of it. And that's, it was fine. And the good news is though, any unused currency you can exchange back. There is a fee. The Cuban government charges you, uh, for, for exchanging, especially it's heavy on the, on the front end when you change from dollars to Cuban currency. Uh, some friends of mine do recommend changing ahead of time before you get to Cuba, before you go on the cruise to some other currency like uh, Canadian dollars or euros, because the, rate at which the penalty rate or whatever the, the fee that you get assessed for converting to Cuban currency is less for those currencies. I thought about doing it. I got lazy and I didn't do it, but food for thought if you're someone who's considering doing that as well. Anyway, any unused money you can get converted back and it's it's fine and it worked out fine in that regard. Uh, so again, once you get out there, uh, you know, we went on our bus and we were on our way. There were third-party tours out there. In fact, you could simply walk out of the building, the customs building, and there were taxis waiting around the corner for you. You could just simply walk into town. It's a lot like Old San Juan. In fact, if you like Old San Juan, you will love Havana is really the name of the game. In fact, after our tour, we just started walking into the city because our tour bus dropped us back off at the customs area, but we had easily three or four hours at that point. So we walked into the into town, and it reminded me so much of old San Juan. But the difference was the buildings in Havana are largely preserved, like the old buildings. Like in, in old San Juan, I feel like either the buildings have been replaced over the years or they've been really modified, upgraded, enhanced to the point where they don't look quite that old. They don't show their age, certainly. In Havana, it looks like these buildings are 400 years old. I mean, they're just, some of them are really, really old, and it really feels like you're taking a step back in time. So I really like that idea, and it's something that I, you know, I just, I loved walking around. Of course, it was, of course, 5,000 degrees outside that day. Uh, by that point, the cloud cover kind of diminished, and the sun had come out, so it was quite warm out, and it was humid. But we ended up going to a restaurant in there. In Havana, there are two types of restaurants, ones that are government-owned, ones that are not government-owned. The government-owned cost more money, whereas the other ones don't. But the ones that are government-owned, they're a little bit nicer to, to be in. Um, I'm pretty sure the one we ate at was government-owned. I didn't, didn't really factor too much into my decision. Honestly, at that point, we were hungry. We were tired. We wanted to eat somewhere, and we found somewhere that looked halfway decent. And, you know, it was what it was. Next time when I go back, I'll certainly do a little more research into it. In fact, next time I go back, I probably do all on my own because I feel like I've seen the important sites on there and, you know, so forth. Anyway, we had dinner, or lunch rather. It was really good. Uh, enjoyed it. We walked around a lot of old Havana, and then we had to get back. Basically, we had to, like, let's like, let's call it an hour to get back. And I, I wanted to be back within an hour. And we actually found uh, one of the tour guides. The um, There's a lot of people who drive around old American cars. It's kind of like in England, people who drive around the taxis, the old black uh, kind of, you know, old-style cars. Well, same thing. In, in Cuba today, most people drive around... Japanese, Asian, and, and, you know, European cars. There's no, there's no new American cars. But the American cars that do exist there are the old cars from the 40s and 50s. And, but they become, well, it's like a sideshow. You know, I mean, they're, 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 first of all, they're Frankensteins. I mean, you know, on the exterior, they look like a 55 Chevelle. But underneath the hood, I mean, they're like a Toyota. And, you know, it's just plugged together parts that, you know, barely, I don't know how the car still functions, quite honestly. But it is a cool thing to do. And, in, you know, after lunch, after walking around a little bit, you know, I found one. It was actually a beautiful uh, red convertible. Uh, it was a, I believe he had told me it was a 1949 Chevrolet Deluxe, which I never heard of, but tells me that's what it was. And I said, you know, look, we want to get back to the ship, but along the way, can we, like, go st- drive by the Capitol building? And Cuba's Capitol building in Havana looks, it's exactly a copy of the, the U.S. Uh, Congress 
building, except it's like one foot taller. Anyway, it's really cool, and I wanted to see it more because on our bus tour we saw it, but it wasn't quite that close. Anyway, I said, look, can we can we drive by there, and then you just drop us off back at the port area. We negotiated the rate, which I think was like 20 bucks, and we were off to the races. And it was really a lot of fun, and I, that's why it kind of led me to believe that if I were to go back tomorrow to Havana, I don't think I'd book a real Caribbean excursion. I'd either do a third-party excursion on my own, like a private tour, because I prefer maybe something like that, or quite frankly, I'd probably just walk around. In fact, if we were to go back to Havana in a colder month of the year, uh, colder is a relative term, of course, you know, if we were to go back in, you know, November through March, where maybe not quite as warm out, I would love to just ex- walk around in the same way that I do that in San Juan, uh, Puerto Rico, where we just walk around and explore and I'd love to eat my way around, do more, certainly sample a lot more of the food that was over there. There's a lot. I mean, Old Havana is massive compared to. Uh, old San Juan. So there's a lot to see and do there. And between, you know, the cultural sites, the restaurants, the historical buildings, the current buildings, uh, the monuments, it's a lot of fun. And the thing that really struck me the most, though, about Cuba was how welcoming and warm the people were. I don't know what I was expecting, quite honestly. I think that in America today, I think we're kind of accustomed to assuming that Cuba is like our enemy. And they certainly, we were at odds with them historically for quite a while. But the people that were very welcoming, somebody, in fact, a lot of people had asked me when I was live blogging it at realcreamblog.com, they were saying, you know, Matt, were, did anyone tell you you couldn't take photos of somewhere or could you go any, you know, were there restrictions on where you could go? And I responded, no, it was fine. It was, we're not in North Korea. There's a difference. It, You know, don't follow the rules just like you would in any city. You know, it's like I, I described it like if you were in Washington, D.C., you can't just walk up on the south lawn of the White House and walk around. There are rules there, just like there are in Cuba as well. But it was not restrictive in, in any kind of way beyond you know the obvious kind of things. And I really did enjoy my time there. I would love to go back again. And I highly recommend it to anybody who's considering it. It is well worth visiting, especially if you've been there, done that, and you feel like another cruise to the Western Caribbean or Eastern Caribbean is just you know more of you know ho-hum, been there, done that. It is Havana is a breath of fresh air for a new place to visit with so much history. And now with Royal Caribbean offering excursions, or sorry, port stops to other ports like Cienfuegos uh, and um, and Santiago de Cuba, you know, there's more port opportunities, more options, longer stays. I, I, I just think it's a, it's a really great time to go visit and see these places and really expand your horizons. And you know, I think going if you're going for the first time. Definitely book a tour of some kind. I don't know that I would, even knowing what I know now, would I go back and do it all on my own? I could have, but I don't know that I would. it would have been a good idea. I think a guided tour is a good start, or at least a private tour of some kind, is a good start to see the highlights, see the basics, the most popular things, and then you start to do the walking tour where you just kind of just you know explore on your own and see what's around the next corner because there's a lot to see and do in Havana. I really enjoyed it. And overall, it was a wonderful cruise. We had a great time. My back, every day my back was better and better, so there you go, and... At the end of the day, I'm glad we went. I'm glad I didn't sit at home. <laughs> and and I'm really glad that I nagged my wife to the point of which she let me book the cruise because it was definitely a awesome sailing from start to finish. All right, it's time to answer your listener questions. This is the part of the podcast where I dive into the ever-overflowing Royal Caribbean blog inbox and answer your Royal Caribbean questions. And we begin this week with an email from Frederick Olson of Sweden, who writes... 
Uh, just opposite Finny of the Seas. What a great ship. Now we can officially say that we've sailed on every single Royal Caribbean ship in the current fleet and a couple of the decommissioned ones. Hooked was the best part of dining and it really has to come to all other ships. A raw bar with fresh oysters. You can't beat that. Redrick, thanks for the email. I can't wait to get on board Symphony of the Seas going in November. Um, but man, it sounds like an amazing ship. I, and as I mentioned earlier in this episode, I do love me some big Royal Caribbean ships. Next email is from Steve Ritteritz. So we just booked a back-to-back on Harmony of the Seas with the Central Park View balcony through Costco Travel. We got cabins for over way less than booking direct through Royal Caribbean. On our first sailing, it was $1,711.36 through Costco with no onboard credit, but Royal Caribbean showed a price of $2,270. Uh, for the other sailing we booked through Costco Travel, it was $1,693, but Royal Caribbean pricing was $2,792 with some onboard credit. We don't get the current onboard credit promotion, but Costco also has a promotion that includes specialty dining, soft drinks, uh, Johnny Rocks, etc., 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 that probably equates to the onboard credit we don't get. I'm not complaining, but I've never even heard of a travel agent being able to sell cabins below Royal Caribbean pricing. Steve, thank you for the email. And the way that Costco works is they're they're they basically it's just like the same way they sell toilet paper, right? It's it's all in bulk, and um, there's a method to their madness. A lot of it, you know, they offer you the upfront savings, but it comes usually at the expense of the service that you get from the agent. What I mean by that, and this is based on I haven't full disclosure, I haven't actually ever used Costco Travel, so I'm basing this all on things that I've heard from other folks who've talked to me about their experiences. But it's really about the level of service you get with a real travel agent. I don't want to say real travel That's kind of mean. But you know what I mean? Like a, a traditional travel agency versus a, a company like Costco Travel or some of these other big box companies that offer travel services. You know, a lot of times, in some cases, there can be change fees, cancellation fees. Uh, you're not usually working with the same agent all the time. And or just the level of service just isn't quite there to the point that you can get with a traditional travel agency. It's why I don't recommend them. I mean, look... I love saving money as much as the next guy. I really do. And, you know, money saved is money earned, and that's money you can spend on other cruises. I totally get that. Um, the thing for me, though, is the level of service. And you know, some of the things that they offer you, like that Costco says in the promotion, which, like, you know, you're, you're staying in a Central Park View balcony. So anybody, regardless of where you book with who stays in a Central Park balcony, is getting cer- certain neighborhood balcony perks, right? So in a Central Park, you're going to be getting a free complimentary dinner at either Giovanni's or Jamie's Italian, depending on the ship you're on. You get a free bottle of red wine and a complimentary gaming lesson. I mean, those are things that come to everybody. Now, of course, Costco and all travel agents do this. They'll be like, hey, look, we're giving you these perks as well. But just keep in mind that some of those perks do come directly from Royal Caribbean, while others are on their end. It's kind of a gray area, quite honestly, in um, the travel industry in this you know this term of rebating. I'm not going to get into all that. But I will tell you that there's, there's give and take. And in, I'm sure, Steve, you know that, you know, with everything in life, there, you know, there, there's a trade-off to almost anything that's out there. But um, look, if you get a good deal, I'm glad to hear that. Next, we have an email from Jake Neal, who's writing, Hey, Matt, was listening to your podcast this week, and one of your listener emails was, was asking about a way to look up your room. I often use a website called iCruise.com that allows you to pick what cabin you're interested in and see a picture of that room. If nothing else, it's a good reference for people who need to see what's in store. My question is, I'm telling you on Oasis of the Seas, and we're big beach people. I was wondering if you could tell me your favorite beaches to go snorkeling at, San Juan or St. Martin. Thank you very much. Hopefully, I can periscope my time on Oasis. Jake, dude, thank you for the email and for the suggestion as well. Places to go snorkeling in San Juan and St. Martin. San Juan is not traditionally a snorkeling hotbed. Uh, certainly, old San Juan is not really a snorkeling place. It's a harbor, and it's a city. 
Um, so you don't really see like it's not like one of those places where you just go, you know, there's a beach like within walking distance. If you wanted to go snorkeling, I would suspect you need to take a cab over to one of the other areas outside of Old San Juan. Uh, the place that always comes to my mind is Carolina, which is an area of San Juan, like New San Juan, I guess we call it, where people can go and, um, you know, there's hotels there. It's a resort area. I suspect there's going to be some level of snorkeling. I mean, really in the Caribbean, almost any beach you go to, snorkeling is just something they offer because it's beautiful waters. You know, it's clear, it's blue, there's fish around you. You're going to see something. It may not be the best area because, you know, certain places are known for snorkeling, right? Cozumel, Bonaire is an example. Uh, but certainly, I'm sure there's something in that area. My recommendation would be to get off, when you get off the ship, hop in a cab and ask the taxi driver for somewhere they might, might be able to recommend. I would also then, while you're still at home, uh, check out a site like TripAdvisor and see if you can't find some good snorkeling recommendations uh, there for places in San Juan. Uh, in St. Martin, you know, St. Martin also, it's it's a little bit easier because there's a lot of beaches in St. Martin. Uh, my recommendation is to go to Grand Case. It is a small village in the on the French side of the island uh, that offers some great beaches. Like, every beach I've ever been to in St. Martin, I'm pretty sure, has a snorkeling component to it. Um, you know, it just seems like it's just a standard offering. But again, ask your taxi driver, hey, I need to go somewhere that offers snorkeling. I'm sure there's a lot of different choices. Unlike, you know, Megan's Bay in St. Thomas, where there's only, like, you go to Megan's Bay, there's just one beach. In a lot of these cases, when you go to a beach, there's many different uh, operators that's set up on the beach. Like, the beach is massive, right? And each, the beach access is free, but different companies set up on the on the back end of the beach to offer different services, like drinks or snorkeling or food or whatever and you know they can offer those kind of services so i think you're going to be able to find something over there uh but i just can't give any first-hand recommendations also to be perfectly honest i'm not much of a snorkeler <laughs> I'm a, i don't like fish touching me and i don't want to touch fish and i'm kind of afraid of fish and <laughs> i like eating fish but not so much seeing them in in the wild so to speak we have our next email is from jared uh Marduz, i hope i said that name correctly uh, hi, Matt. Really enjoying your podcast. We've just booked a cruise on Liberty this season, which we're really excited about since we haven't been on Liberty since all the upgrades were added. We're traveling with four families and ten kids. Maybe we are crazy. And just had a couple of questions that hopefully you or the other listeners may be able to help us with. We've never cruised out of Galveston. Would love any recommendations for car services from the airport to the cruise area. Also, the kids we're traveling with are in the range of ages and will be in each group of Adventure Ocean. One of the kids will just turn nine before the cruise, which will put them in Adventures of sorry in Voyagers group in Adventure Ocean. But the rest of the group of friends will still be in Explorers. Do you know if the Adventure Ocean staff will, would object to the nine-year-old going with his friends, even though they're not technically in the proper age range? Thanks for your insight and happy cruising, Jared. Thank you for the email, my friend. Uh, in terms of Galveston. It's been a while since I cruised out of Galveston, but I would recommend uh, looking into Lyft or uh, Uber, one of the car sharing services or ride sharing services, rather. It's usually fairly inexpensive. Uh, back in my day, they didn't offer it over there, but they've since relaxed the regulations, and that's now an option for you. Uh, if you're all flying in together, you've got four families. You know, it's one of those. You might look bit. Perhaps a ride sharing, a car rental service might be better than a ride sharing service, simply because if you've got that many people, like a 15 passenger van is like you know something you really really need, and that might be a better value for you. Certainly, I'd look into some some of the car services as well. Again, it depends if you're coming in like separately or you're all flying in together. I think that's gonna dictate it. But if you're coming in separately, you know, it's just you and your family, and then you'll meet the rest of your family later on. I would he- lean heavily towards a Lyft or an Uber just f- for simplicity's sake. The other option, of course, you're talking about, uh, or the question, rather, is about Adventure Ocean. So, in my experience, it is possible, but there's some caveats to that. As an example, when my my daughter, who's my oldest daughter, who's now seven, 
Uh, she, you know, she started Adventure Ocean very early, and she loved Aquanauts, which is the three to five year old group. And then when she turned six years old, you know, she was going to go to Explorers. We all knew that. She knew that. And we're like, okay, cool. And we're looking forward to it, quite honestly. But it was a little overwhelming for her when she first went into Explorers. I think the first like three cruises we went on in Explorers, she ended up downgrading to Aquanauts. Now, this ended up being at the discretion, it's always at the discretion of the Adventure Ocean staff. Uh, the first time it happened, I believe she told us she didn't like it, and she was explaining that a lot of times, look, there's a big difference between a, someone who just turned six and an eight-year-old who's been eight for a while, and in a lot of cases, explorers and voyagers, who's the next group up, tend to get combined. It happens almost all the time on sea days, and in the evening sessions, which are the most popular, it can even happen then, but certainly once you get to after hours past 10 o'clock, it happens, and look, at the end of the day, when you've got... 9, 11-year-olds, they're going to play very differently uh, than, you know, 6 and 7-year-olds. And it's just one of the dynamics. And uh, in, in the cases in which we've downgraded, I think some one time Adventure Ocean came to us and said, look, we've noticed that she's not really having a good time and that we think she'd be better off in Aquanauts. And the other two times, we asked kindly for it. My suggestion is uh, you can certainly ask. Go on a, on day one to Adventure Ocean and speak with the staff over there during registration and explain your concerns there. Now, more than likely, they may tell you, look, let's see how it goes. Because the ability to downgrade, first and foremost, is dependent upon capacity. If they're slammed with kids, you know, they just can't, it's not physically possible for them to downgrade uh, your child to, to explorers. Well, that's the way it is. In my experience, it's not usually the case, but let me give you that line. Anyway, more than likely, I think they may ask you to at least give it a try in Voyager's. And keep in mind, a lot of times they get combined, especially if they stay after hours. And on sea days, almost always, explorers and voyagers are combined. Just because during sea days, you usually don't get that many kids in. and In the afternoon, I should say. And, or in the morning. And as a result, they end up combining for just you know making it simpler. So you may end up getting your wish regardless. But I would go speak to them on day one, express your concerns, and be okay with the answer being no. But I think generally they're pretty flexible. Just you have to come at it, you know, like I demand my child downgrade. And like don't go at it like that. You know, just ask kindly, explain the situation, and you never know. Uh, that'd be my recommendation there, Jared. If I think it'll work out for you in the grand scheme of things. But thank you for the email. And we have another email. It is from Haley Short. And Haley writes, I just finished listening to episode 248 of the podcast, What You Need to Know About Taking a Cruise to Europe. As a resident of the UK and a veteran of a Mediterranean cruise and a Scandinavian cruise, and with two more med cruises booked, I thought I'd chip in with a couple of observations from my experiences. Uh, in terms of port intensive itineraries, while it's true that many European itineraries are very port intensive, it is possible to get more of a balance, at least on Mediterranean-bound cruises, by sailing out of Southampton, England. The distance between Southampton and the Med means you have a good old bit of sailing to do, which means sea days. For us, having time to relax and enjoy the ship is just as important as exploring the ports, and so the number of sea days is a big influence for us and was the major factor in us choosing Independence over Symphony for our cruise this year. For our first cruise, sailing on November in August 2016 for 14 nights, we had seven sea days and seven port days, the perfect balance. This balance was an important factor in choosing our upcoming Independence sailing where we will once again sail to the Med from Southampton, this time with eight ports and six sea days. Next year, we have a sailing book that again takes us to the Med, but with six ports and eight sea days. That one, unfortunately, is not on Royal Caribbean, but on P&O. We're taking the crew to celebrate my mother-in-law's 60th birthday, so we had to go with her choice of itinerary and ship, so please don't hate me. However, I am looking forward to being able to compare the two cruise lines and being able to compare P&O to Princess, who we sailed to Scandinavia with last year. 
And in terms of the use of euros, most of the countries in the Mediterranean use the euro, but people should be aware that this is not the case for all European countries. Scandinavian countries in particular tend to use separate currencies, although when we were in Copenhagen, it was possible to pay for the hop-on, hop-off bus in euros. However, I think this has made it slightly more expensive than paying in their local currency. For other purchases, we just use our debit cards. Thanks for all the hard work with the blog and the podcast. I've been listening and reading since March 2016 in preparation for our Navigator cruise. The blog, podcast, and message boards provide a wealth of knowledge and help me keep going from one cruise to the next. I am only sorry that I will have just this week managed to catch up on all the podcasts listening uh, previous episodes, and now I'm going to have to wait a whole week between episodes. <laughs> Ailey, love it. Thank you for the email. I'm so sorry for your newfound problem. Uh, and great advice, uh, certainly for the portents of itineraries. You know, when I guess when we were talking about that in episode 248, you know, you look. I was kind of looking at it through the lens of if you book a seven-night cruise in the Med, you're going to get a, odds are, a very portents of itinerary versus a seven-night cruise in the Caribbean. There's a big difference there. But you're absolutely right. There are obviously big exceptions to that rule. And certainly if you're sailing from England, it's going to be different than if you're sailing from Barcelona in the grand scheme of things. But it's important to know that there are variations. It's not to say that you're right, Haley. Not all European itineraries are inherently port intensive. Uh, there are some variations there. And in terms of the use of the euros, great point about the Scandinavian countries. And also using your debit card, a really important tip. You know, I was for a long time, uh, I would always bring a credit card of mine to uh, the Caribbean to use is always my backup card. You know, when there was like a big purchase, I would just use that rather than using my cash. So I had a cash backup, right? Anyway, when we were, uh, but I realized um, the card I was using for a while had terrible uh, service fees for, uh, you know, the international costs, you know, whatever they were doing. Anyway, long story short, debit cards are usually a much better solution for that. So great recommendation there, Haley. Thank you for that email there. And we have time for one last email. It comes to us from Tina. All right, it's Matt. What can I say? Like celebrity like you in so many words who has so much information about cruising in every respect. However, what about shopping? You know, it's on every girl's mind, even those guys too. With all the information daily and weekly, we can all be prepared, stress-free, and thoroughly enjoy cruising, knowing the ins and outs of what to expect. Have you ever done an episode on shopping in the Caribbean, especially Mexico? We hear all the time and time again about duty-free shopping in Mexico, and there's some sort of 8% bounce-back offer if you file a designated money-back location in Mexico. Is shopping that beneficial for our wallets at the end of the day with duty-free and bounce-back, or is this another tourist trap? Curious to hear your opinion. Tina, thank you for the email, and Tina's actually right. I remember, after reading your email, Tina, I remember we actually did this one time. So, let's start off at the beginning. Uh, no, I have nothing in an episode just on shopping. Probably should. It's not a bad idea. Uh, shopping in the Caribbean, really any place you visit, can be advantageous. I know that, as an example, my mother loves uh, a particular brand of vodka, Grey Goose Vodka, and actually, Royal Caribbean has like an amazing deal, according to her, on Grey Goose Vodka, uh, by virtue of the fact that, number one, in almost all cases, like on Royal Caribbean, it is duty-free, you know, just not paying the tax on it is huge. And secondly, a lot of times you can get a much better price than at your local liquor store. Now, certain countries, though, when you're going, you know, whether you're talking about Mexico or St. Thomas or I'm sure any, you know, place where a lo- some sort of uh, local product is sourced in that country, you're going to get it for cheaper. In the same way that here in the United States, you know, Budweiser, I think, is supposed to cost us less here than it should if you were to buy it overseas, as an example. Um Certain countries are known for these kind of products, and theoretically, you can get a better deal on it. I think if you're going into the cruise, and you know, like, I would love to buy uh, some new jewelry, like maybe a watch, or silver, or gold, you know, it behooves you to do some research as to the going rate, and market value, and all those kinds of things. Obviously, you know, jewelry isn't like a pair of jeans. It's not like, say, you can go to the Gap in Mexico versus the Gap over here, and be able to compare apples to apples. 
you know, it's it's all different. But um, at least gives you a better a ballpark idea of what to expect and what is a good price or not. Um, and certain countries are known for it. Like Mexico, a great example. Mexico is really known for silver. That's like its big thing over there. Uh, so a lot of products you see in jewelry stores in Mexico will often have that. Now, of course, where you go shopping at in any particular country is an important decision. When you are in your Royal Caribbean ship, you'll get a port shopping map. It's usually included in the cruise compass for the day you're about to go to, you know, whatever port you're visiting. And to be fair, it's important to note that the port shopping map is actually more like Yellow Pages. All the listings there are almost always paid by companies to appear there. So it's paid listings. It's more of a ad than it is an informational sheet. Um, there's nothing wrong with attending, you know, the port shopping guide, stuff that Royal Caribbean does and all those things. It doesn't hurt, but just keep in the back of your mind that in almost all these cases, there is some sort of a business arrangement between the company and Royal Caribbean. It's the reason why, like, you know, Diamonds International and Tanzan International always <laughs> appear in advertising for all of those stuff. And why you see Diamonds International in pretty much every port you visit. It's not to say you can't get a deal over there or they're bad products or anything like that. Far from it. I'm sure a lot of people can have had good success there, but I just, you know, I tend to stay away from them. To me, it's almost like, it's like going to, you know, Cuba and eating at McDonald's, if there was a McDonald's in Cuba. Like, it's like, why would you go all the way over there? You know, go somewhere more local instead of these chains that are out there. Um, And certainly, if I can just, you know, get on my soapbox for a second here, if I had not already up there already, and say, please don't, you know, the places that give you, like, the free uh, trinkets for your jewelry and the pendants, you know, nothing's free in life, trust me, it's just a sales pitch, just keep that all in mind, I know some people go for it all the time, and they're, you know, it is what it is, but uh, my advice is, you know, get off in the port, walk around, and A, know what the port is known for, and B, Walk around and pressure. Be don't be afraid to walk away. That is huge. Don't walk into the first shop you see and buy something necessarily. Walk into a couple, see the differences, see the variations on them. Ask them where it's made. You know, first thing I ask is, is this made in China or is this actually made here? Oh, this is a local jeweler? Who's the jeweler? Is it around here? You know, these kind of questions can give you an idea if this is just a reseller or if this is somebody who really does make something. It's really nice when you can make a connection with somebody who really makes a lot. You know, my favorite is when you walk into a store and it's like, you know, I make this jeweler and my brother does this or my sister does this and she's over there in the back over there and you can see her smiling and waving. She's working on it. Like, it's kind of cool when you have that kind of personal connection. Certainly, there's a little more mystique or uh, a better story to, you know, any piece of jewelry that you can buy on a cruise because you can look at that ring or that necklace or that bracelet and be like, ah, right, that was when we bought in San Juan or that's when we got in St. Thomas. And, you know, it's, it's a little more interesting than, oh, I got that at Macy's during the Mother's Day sale. <laughs> Nothing wrong with buying it at Macy's either, I'm just saying. But, um, you know, it's something to keep in mind. Now, Tina brings up something that is the, the bounce back offer or basically a tax refund. And it actually is a real thing. We actually did this when we were on... Uh, in Mexico a couple of years ago, I bought my wife a ring somewhere in Cozumel, and I remember hearing about it, and I remember thinking to myself, no way this is legit, but it's, I think, kind of legit. Um, it, here, basically, I did a little bit of research here to get you the information. There is a, this kind of basically tax refund option, where basically if you go to Mexico and you buy a certain product, and you spend a certain amount of money, and you are somebody who is returning back to your home your country by sea or air, as opposed to driving in, then you can be eligible potentially for a tax refund on the tax you paid. Basically, you pay a certain amount of, of local tax on the item, but then when you get home, they, they refund that tax value. 
theoretically. Here's how it's supposed to work. To be eligible for the tax refund, you must have spent at least 1,200 pesos on Mexican goods. There's no refund for services, so hotel and food expenses do not apply, and you must return to your country by sea or air. Each receipt that you present must be for at least 1,200 pesos. Individual items may cost less, but the complete purchase at the store must be at least for that amount. If the purchase is paid for in cash, the total taken into account will not surpass 3,000 pesos. Credit card purchases should be made with Visa, MasterCard, or American Express. Purchases must be made in stores and establishments that are affiliated with a tax reimbursement program in order to qualify. And basically, the way that it works is you have to look for the money back logo in the store window or ask the salesperson if the store is part of that program. Then when you make the purchase, request a VAT, V-A-T, itemized invoice. When leaving the country, you need to go to a money-back kiosk or office at your airport or cruise ship terminal and present your passport, immigration form, uh, your boarding pass, or cruise ID for the departure, receipts for your purchases, all with the credit card vouchers, and you should also bring along the goods you purchased that can be verified. I did this one time. We bought, I think it was a ring. I, I remember the salesman told me about this. I was thinking back in my head, this is totally not legit. Okay, whatever, dude. I'll just, it, <laughs> I'm never going to see this money again. And we went to the place. I remember, I believe the money back kiosk was, I think, in the in the cruise terminal area before you actually get back onto board the ship. And, you know, I remember thinking, oh boy, you know, no way this is legit. But anyway, I filled it all out because whatever. If I get the money, I get the money. And then we actually did get the check back eventually. It took a couple weeks, but it eventually got back to us. Uh, and it's sort of real, I guess. Um, I'm not an expert on it. Uh, everything I read to you, by the way, was from a website called tripsavvy.com, and it was about the Mexican tourist tax refund. So, you know, your, your mileage may vary, but from I remember it actually being legit. I just, you know, it's it does sound like almost too good to be true. Uh, but a lot of times, to be fair, they the, the store will use that as leverage for negotiating the price. Like, instead of giving you that discount, they'll be like, well, you're going to get the discount anyway from this country, so I don't have to give it to you. Hence, the price can be a little bit higher. You know, it's one of those, uh, those strategies, if you will, that, you know, when you're negotiating price. But if you do hear about it, it is kind of a real thing. And it is worth mentioning, but I should, well, we probably should do an episode about shopping in, in, in more detail because, you know, certain ports, I know like St. Thomas is really well known for jewelry and watches. You know, as I mentioned earlier, Mexico is really known for silver uh, and certain ports all have different things they're, you know, known for things that you should, you know, be looking for to, to buy. So regardless of where you're going, know what they're known for, you know, and that may be a good way to lead towards, you know, purchasing a certain item there. And like I said, sometimes just being tax-free in and of itself is a better deal than buying it at home. But also be a savvy shopper. Don't be afraid to walk away. And also, you should know if something is really too good to be true, it probably is. And, you know, you want to, there's nothing wrong with going to, you know, a place that's not, not listed in Royal Caribbean Shopping Guide. But there are also some scam places that are out there. So obviously look for some sort of legitimacy. And, you know, there, there's a happy medium between, you know, Diamonds International and on the other side of the spectrum, some dude selling jewelry you know, out of a suitcase on the corner of the street, right? There, there's kind of a difference there, right? And you should be able to, as a savvy shopper, know the difference. Um, so, you know, at least be able to you rely on your gut. And again, don't be afraid to walk away. And in a lot of cases, if you're going on a Caribbean cruise with three or four port stops, you know, uh, buying a nice ring somewhere may not be all that different you're buying in Grand Cayman versus Cozumel versus, you know, some other island you're visiting. So it's okay to shop around, you know. But, uh, Tina, thank you for the email. Thank you to everybody for listening to this week's episode of the Royal Caribbean Blog Podcast. Of course, you can always send me an email by sending it to Matt, M-A-T-T, at RoyalCaribbeanBlog.com. Matt at RoyalCaribbeanBlog.com. So until next time, I'm Matt Hochberg. We'll talk again soon.